Grace is yours and mercy and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was the name of the sermon that I was writing. When I sent this along to everybody on Monday or Tuesday, I was working on a sermon talking about how the God is taking care of the birds, that even those birds that are considered to be basically pests. I mean, I looked up, how much would I pay for such a bird today? And everything on the internet just said how to kill them. Said, you know, they're going to get your blue jays. You're going to want to kill these birds. So uh, even those birds, God pays attention to. And, and the other one is the bees. Well, the God, does, God sends the bees out to do their work. We don't, we don't give them instructions. We don't have them punch a time clock. And yet they have been identified by the National Geographic Society as the most important animals on the planet for sustaining life. Wow. And then, then on Thursday, I received an advanced copy of Hal Sinkbile's next book. I think Hal Sinkbile is a, a man who's in his 70s. He's retiring. He was the co-director of Doxology, uh, which has been helpful to hundreds and hundreds of pastors this pastor included, y'all sent me to uh, doxology after the tornado, after I'd worn myself down to, uh, down to nubs and didn't have much more to give. You sent me to San Francisco to sit at the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away and also to sit at Hal Sankbile's feet and to hear from him exactly what a pastor is. I already knew, but I needed to hear it again. He's written a couple of books that have been very, very helpful. He also was the, uh, he also was the, uh, one of the regents for Concordia Seminary in St. Louis for many years. Uh, he's retiring now because of the fact that his, his wife's chronic condition requires him to be at home more frequently. And so his successor is being put in place. But as he's leaving, he's adding to the books that have already been very useful to the church. One of them, uh, Dying to Live, The Power of Forgiveness. This is a terrific book. And here's another one that's Sanctification, Christ in Action. Here's what it is. This is the same book as this, except this is for lay people and this is for theologians and Bible classes. But anyway... He's written another book called Christ and Calamity. And as I said, I got an advanced copy of it on Thursday and continued with writing my birds and the bees and the work of God and yesterday decided, I want to share some of Hal's stuff. So, From Dr. Sankbile's Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley. Do you remember the bracelets many Christians used to wear which read WWJD? What would Jesus do? There was also a bumper sticker, WWJD, 
which probably encouraged people to drive like Christians. Uh, but I always thought it stood for what would Jesus drive? Well, what would Jesus do is a good question. Actually, it's not a bad way to guide our decision making. The world would be a better place if those of us who follow Christ, who have been claimed by Jesus, would show Jesus' love and care in more of our interactions. And it would make a big difference if we reflected on that question before spouting off to our neighbors or unloading on our spouses. What would Jesus do? But it also oversimplifies. It oversimplifies the biblical record. Because what would Jesus do? Well, now and then, he would make a whip and drive everybody out of the temple and overturn tables and, and yell at everybody. And at other times, he would bring comfort. He would rebuke Peter for his violence in Gethsemane. He would praise the woman who extravagantly poured ointment over his head, but also commend the woman who gave a couple of pennies to church. Jesus saw into the human heart in a way that we cannot, so it's hard for us to figure out what he'd do in every situation. But one thing you can count on, what would Jesus do? He would suffer. Here's another. He would love. Here's another. He would comfort. Now, comfort doesn't always make us comfortable. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that is making us uncomfortable goes away. What it, what it means is that we know that God is with us that he is there with us in every situation. Have you ever noticed that when calamity strikes, after the initial shock wears off, our first thought is almost always, why did it happen to us? Why me? Somehow we've gotten it into our head that God's job is to make us happy and keep us that way. After all, he's God, isn't he? And doesn't God know everything? And if he knows our present circumstances, and if he is powerful to change them, then our lives should be unfailingly pleasant, right? What gave us the idea that the maker of heaven and earth is supposed to keep everything on an even keel? If you've read your Bible, you know that in the beginning, God created a good world. But sin entered the world through one man, and death was the consequence. And now, like a deadly contagion, death has spread through all humankind, because all people sin. God's pristine creation had no suffering, no death, no disappointment, no destruction, no depression. But that creation's been destroyed. 
This earth is still a delightful place to live. I've been enjoying, obviously Hal didn't write this part, but I have been enjoying the fact that Jason's been taking us outside for a lot of the children's talks. That's something we, we couldn't do on a normal basis, right? I mean, if he would normally take the children outside for the children's talk, we'd all just kind of sit here and wait for them to get back. But instead, he's been able to show us birds and bees and, and, and flowers and trees. The world is indeed a pleasant place. But everywhere we look, our beautiful world is filled with hardship and sickness and death even of those we love. Though by God's merciful grace, he works everything, including sorrow and pain, for the good of those who love him. The awful truth is that all misery comes from his gracious hand. God himself says so in Deuteronomy 32. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none to deliver from my hand. Sounds pretty harsh. And I don't like it any more than you do. When I see suffering in my, in my wife, this is Hal now, when I see suffering in my wife or in those around me, I'd do anything to even briefly relieve their suffering for just an instant, but I can't. Usually neither can you. That's our frustration. Some things in this broken world can't be fixed, humanly speaking. And it does no good for us to whine about it. But there's something else I can recommend. Instead of whining, try lamenting. You probably have been told that a full third of the Psalms are laments. And you know some of them by heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, will you cast us off forever? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why, do you, why are you in turmoil within me? Vindicate me, O oh God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. These psalms of lament teach us how to file a complaint with God. And yes, that is perfectly acceptable. File a complaint with the Almighty. Complaining isn't whining. If you've ever read your medical records, you know that medical complaints are simply the physical symptoms of your disease, your distress. When you go to the doctor and explain what it is that is bothering you, you're not whining to him. You're describing your present situation and asking for his help, her help. You list your complaints because you know your condition. 
and you know that your condition should receive attention from someone who is a lot better at this than you are. The condition might not go away. Some of the symptoms may remain. But you've gone to someone who can do something about it. Likewise, lamenting is calling God's attention to what he already knows. He knows that you're hurting. He also knows it's no fun to do so. The miserable situation forces you to acknowledge that you are not a self-made person. You depend on God for your very life, but sometimes it takes a calamity to impress that dependence upon you and to bring you to the point of lament. Lament can be a cry of faith. So God, in his grace, invites you to complain to him to bring him your hurts and your miseries. It's okay that these things feel too big for you. There's no real way to cope with disaster and tragedy on your own. It's important to not keep these troubles bottled up inside you. Like any loving father, God in his mercy invites us to come and talk to him. So like little children, we crawl into his lap by means of our lament and tell him just where it hurts and ask him to help. Turn, O Lord, Psalm 6 says, deliver my life and save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Believing that our God is gracious even when life hurts, even when tragedy strikes. We reason that if God is almighty, we shouldn't be in this predicament in the first place, and it's probably bad manners to bring it up to God. Because by all appearances, he doesn't seem to be able to help. The last thing we'd want to do is embarrass God. But that's why it's essential at all times, especially in the midst of tragedy, that we not depend on our own speculations because we might come to the conclusion that God doesn't know or God doesn't care. But the very hairs of our head are numbered. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We should depend rather on God's sure word. If we only draw on our experience of calamity, the steadfast love of the Lord will remain invisible. Why not trust in the one who has delivered so many of his people in the past? rather than on the resources that your few years have given you. Looking at our pain and misery alone, we could be tempted to conclude that God is angry at us 
Or even worse, to conclude that we're innocent victims caught in the crossfire as God fires at those that he is angry with. But God's true perspective on human suffering is revealed not in our experience, but in his. God's beloved son suffered in great agony of body and mind and spirit as the sinless victim of our sin, that he might bring us to God. Crucifixion was a gory, anguishing mess. In the midst of his deep physical and spiritual agony, Jesus too felt that God was against him as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In times of calamity, we have hope. Christ, who knows human misery, is with us in our suffering. And his suffering sanctifies our pain. Because he was abandoned, we never will be. Because of Jesus, our Father in heaven wraps us in his embrace. Before it was finished on that, fine, fine, on that dark Friday, before Jesus breathed his last, he committed his spirit into the hands of his loving Father in fervent faith. And because of Jesus, you can be certain that you have a loving Father to whom you can turn in your complaints and misery just as Jesus did on the cross. Even though you see no available malady, remedy, sorry, you're not shouting into an empty void when you pray your laments. Though you are in distress, you can place yourself, your body, your soul, and all things into his care, believing that for Jesus' sake, your Father in heaven fervently loves you and will see you through your present suffering. Lamenting your hurt, but trusting his cross-shaped love, you can confidently Ask him to sustain you through all your days in faith-filled hope. Earlier in this service, we confessed Psalm 91. The psalm just before it, Psalm 90, includes these words. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your merciful love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. Would you join me in the offertory? <laughs>